All right, if you have a Bible, we are, I'm going to take you to, to Luke chapter 2 to start with. We were here last week, but I just want to use it as a springboard to uh, unpack the second week of this series we're calling Miracle. Luke chapter 2, we're going to pick it up around verse 9 in just a second. I don't know how much we should trust Webster's Dictionary on definitions, um, and many sermons have been built around the authenticity of those definitions, and I will be one as well. But Webster defines the word peace uh, fairly comprehensively. Listen to what he says, or they say, about this word peace. It's a state of tranquility or quiet, freedom from civil disturbance, freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts or emotions, harmony in personal relations. Um, I was impressed when I read the definition because it seemed to be fairly comprehensive. It kind of dealt in total with everything I see as, as parts and pieces of, of peace. If we use Webster's definition as, as kind of our standard of what is peace, well, let me just ask you a question. How are you doing with this word this year? Peace. I, I have a tendency, at least I have been this year, probably more than usual, of watching too much news. And uh, what's mostly what happens in, these, in the news that I watch is a lot of conflict. I mean, I suppose if I were to say, let me put on a play, here's the play, anti-peace, and you just watch the news. People hate each other. Problems are everywhere. Everyone's got a different opinion, separation, division. It seems to be what, what is the norm. I found this... Uh, survey from an institute called uh, the Institute for Economic and Peace, and it made an assessment out of the 196 countries in our world, only 11 of them currently right now are experiencing no conflict. We're just talking about wars and conflicts and divisions between people groups. It's, it's not very good. In fact, I've told you this before, but in 3,600 years, um, the world has only known 292 years of peace. 100, uh, 14,596 registered wars, almost 4 billion people slaughtered in war. So generally speaking, this idea of conflict, we don't have such a good record on peace. Let's stop for a second. That's, that might be fairly obvious. How do we do when we turn the mirror on the inside? When Webster defines this piece of, of oppressive thoughts and emotions, how do you, how do you respond to that? How, how is this year on the inside? How is the stress on the inside? The uh, American Psychological Association says that almost everyone's stress level this year has increased. They, the the, the 4,000 they surveyed, 80% of them said it's worse. 40% um, of those said it's, it's the highest they've ever experienced. There was an interesting little scale of 1 to 10 talking about the levels of stress, and they broke it down based on generations. So if you're part of the, of the matures, um, if you're older, pre-boomer, um, out of 1 through 10, they suggest that, that, that matures are struggling at a stress level of 3.5, okay? If you move on to the, to the boomers, which is my generation, you have a 4.3 response to the question of stress. If you get to the Gen Xers, you've got a 5.8, and the millennials are at a 6 and climbing. <clears throat> Doesn't get better with youth, I suppose. Um, so where do you think they say all this lack of peace is coming from? What's the source? What do you think? It's, number one is the same one it's always been, like as long as they've been kind of taking surveys. Number one cause of stress to all generations, is money. 
Interesting, isn't it? Money, and the second one's kind of related to its work. How work establishes a platform for making money. Um, families on that list. This year includes this struggle of discrimination and racism in our world. It's creating stress. And there are things like this election, obviously, that has created a whole bunch of internal uh, turmoil. And if I'm honest, and I'm supposed to, I can watch your heads nod to this, this hasn't been a very stress-free year, watching this election and watching how people responded to it. So we, we've taken this idea of this Advent series, and we said, let's talk about the miracle. And the miracle, miracle is singular because the miracle of Christmas is Jesus, God come in the flesh. And we're going to talk about that really specifically next week. But, but with Jesus comes all these so what's, all these ripple effects to his coming. Last week we talked about joy being one of those things. When the angel announced the coming of the birth of the Savior, joy was a response. And we questioned our joy. Where's our joy? In the midst of our world, right? Okay. Well, there's the other thing that comes into this, and that is this idea of peace. So before I unpack some of it for us, I just want to know how you do with hearing good news over and over and over again. You ever get tired of it? Anybody want to tap out on good news? Like, move on to something else. You know, bum me out. Do something depressing. Okay, we're going to talk about peace. Because of all the promises and declarations of a coming king, one of his titles is Prince of Peace. So if we're going to get our head around this Christmas, again, what Jesus comes and one of the miracles we experience in his coming, then we got to deal with what we're very familiar with, and that is this idea of peace. Luke chapter 2, let's go and hear this announcement again, starting in verse 9. We're going to kind of pick it up in the middle, but here's, here's what the angel says, okay? And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with, filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, that's what we talked about last week. It goes on. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest, here it is, and on earth, peace those whom he is pleased, among those whom he is pleased. Listen to the prophet Isaiah talking about this coming Messiah again in verse 6 of chapter 9. This is what Isaiah says, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What's the last title? Prince Prince of Peace. Very interesting when Isaiah is talking about this coming one. Every one of those statements is an exclusive statement. This one coming, this child who's born, who's coming for us, he is the exclusive, the wonderful counselor. He is the almighty God. He is the everlasting father and he is the exclusive Prince of peace. The, the word peace in the Hebrew language is a very familiar word, I think, for most of us. It is the word shalom. Everybody heard of shalom before? Okay. Shalom simply means harmony, wholeness, and completeness. That's what the word means in the Hebrew. So when Isaiah makes this announcement and says, this child who we know is Jesus, this Messiah is the bringer of peace, he is saying Jesus is the exclusive source of peace. 
the one-stop shop for everything the human heart desires, Jesus, okay? So if you understand all that we've read so far, if peace is harmony and wholeness and completeness, if it's shalom and Jesus is its only source, then this statement by Isaiah and this statement from the angel is way more than a throwaway statement talking about a Jesus and what he'll do later. This is an exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way, church, listen, the only way you can know completeness and wholeness. And I suppose if there's another way to define when I don't feel complete and when I don't feel whole is when something outside of me affects me to such a degree I am lost and I'm confused and I'm without peace. Jesus is the exclusive claim of peace. And how does he do that? Uh, This won't be a surprise. This is the good news you know. He does it by bringing peace with God. I don't know where you come from. I don't know why you're here. I also read this on Saturday that uh, they suggest that uh, attendance at Christmas this year could be 40% higher than in previous years. But the, the key issue between whether they'll darken the doors of a church is if someone asks them. So I suppose we should ask somebody this Christmas. But aside from that, isn't it interesting that there's an inclination to even consider it? Maybe it is that people are just dealing with all the disappointments of their world, of their decisions, of their life, and go, maybe there's some other answer, or maybe there's something else. That could be ringing in the background. But this reality of Jesus being the Prince of Peace is anchored in the thought and the reality in the truth that, that he is the peace with God. If I stopped and we did like a class, a give and take here, and I said, tell me, tell me about God. Come on, church, jump in. Throw in a word. Tell me about your God. Somewhere, probably in the first few sentences, someone would say, he's holy. And you'd be right. Righteous, sinless, perfect, otherly, he's holy. He's not like us. Not all. Not even a little bit. He's totally different. Now, if I said, okay, tell me about us. Throw in. Throw in a word. Even if you don't go to church, you don't have Bible words to answer the question, my guess is you'd say something like, we're sloppy. We're messy, we're difficult, we're troubled, we're stressed. And I'm totally cool if you use those terms because from your vantage point, that's just a descriptive way to describe what the Bible says is our condition, who we are. In fact, here's a word, I don't mean to offend you, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. The Bible says we are sinners. I hear from time to time that people get tired of hearing about the bad news. I'm sorry. Because the only way I can understand how good the good news is is understanding how bad the bad news is. And the bad news is this. We are all sinners. If, if God is described as holy and perfect and righteous and good, always is, here's one way to understand it. Nobody is other than him. We all fall short according to, to Paul. All of us fall short. Okay. You are describing this reality that we're all sinners. And just so we can define this understanding, being called a sinner isn't a description of what you do, okay? Being called a sinner is a description of your heart condition that describes why you do what you do, okay? There's a big difference between being a responder, a victim in your world, and pressure comes on you, and all you do is react, kind of innocently, but honestly, right? And so what comes out of you because you've been hurt is to react sinfully. I get that. But the main reason why we all sin is because deep down in us, our heart is twisted and dark. And we sin because we're sinners. The actions just prove it. They don't make it. Make sense? It's a heart condition, all right? 
And that's the cause of bad things. Let me, you don't have to turn there, but we've, we've gone through this book before. But in Romans, the, the Apostle Paul tells us how deep, how wide, how pervasive this darkness is. When he describes this this way, none is righteous. In other words, nobody is like God. No, not one. Nobody understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one, no one does good. Not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the apostles' biblical statement on how deep the problem goes. No one seeks God. No one does righteous. No one ever. In fact, here's how else Paul describes the problem. Um, in verse 10, he's unpacking how Jesus is the solution to this problem. And he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. He is describing this, this problem. It isn't like we're passive in our unrighteousness. We're aggressive in our unrighteousness. There is a war being waged between God the Almighty and every sinner who walks the planet. It's got to go my way. It's got to be this way. I've got to come out on top. God, you've got to grade on a curve. I can't be that bad. And so there's this conflict between what God says and who I am. A war, at enmity, always going on between us, okay? When the angel in Luke 2 and Isaiah mentions and announced the coming of Jesus the Messiah, he is pronounced as the exclusive peace to man. And the peace that they're referring to is the peace in this conflict that exists between God and man. It is the peace that, that we need in our hearts, and it's the peace that we need for the separation between a holy God and a sinful man. The Jews had a blessing for this that describes it perfectly. This is kind of the longing of the human heart, but you've probably heard this before, number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. You've heard that blessing before? Let, let me paraphrase for you what, what it would sound like in the modern vernacular. God, would you, would you just bless me? Don't, don't curse me. I, I know I deserve that, but would you just bless me? God, would you keep me? Don't, don't cast me away as I deserve. God, would you shine your face on me? Don't go dark, God. Don't go away from me. Continue to show up. Continue to do things in my life. God, look at me. Don't look away. God, bless me. B bless me. Don't, don't distress me in, in my life. That is, the, that is the blessing of number six. The whole point of this Hebrew blessing is that God would be, if you want to describe it in a very familiar vernacular, that God would be our friend because that's what friends do. God, could, you, could we turn this whole thing from war and conflict, from outsiders and insiders to you just love me and I'm, I'm your friend, I'm your child, could we have that? Uh, my, my assumption, I'm going to jump a huge chasm here maybe, I don't care where you come from, if I describe to you your stress and your worries and your problems and your sin and all the anxious things you deal with and all the brokenness in the world, and if I said to you, you can have peace with God, an understanding that surpasses any description, or you can continue in your conflict, my guess is most people go, well, I'd rather have that. I'd rather have the peace. 
I'd rather have that preference of God, the blessing of God. But here's how twisted the human condition is. I say that to us because I think if you're just thinking, I'd rather have peace than conflict. I'd rather have relationship than brokenness. I'd rather have that. Here's what the human heart does in its twistedness. It thinks it can sort out the problem on its own. It instinctively goes to, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll do this. I'll be good enough for God to notice me. And then God will shine on me. Then he won't turn away. Then he will bless me and not curse me. That's what I'll do. I'll just outperform. I watched a, a documentary on football life on Roger Staubach the other day. He's basically a saint, I think, um, Saint Roger. You might not have heard of him. But everybody talks about him like he's the pinnacle of all behavior. And when you listen to him, he tries really, really hard. And that's what the human heart does. It thinks that by behavior modification, that God is scanning the earth and he goes, wow, you're impressive. I'm gonna change all the rules. You know that thing about no one's righteous? Not you. You're different. And I'm gonna extend to you some gracious reaction based on you being so different. No, we're the same. And our reaction by building good piles proves it. Here's what we think. If I build this pile of good things, God will owe me. Seriously? No. No one's righteous, not even one. The peace of God isn't something that we can accomplish. It is something exclusively that he provides Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, what? While you and I were in the condition of war, when I did not recognize God or give glory to God, when I thought it was about me, when I was building my own kingdom, when I was at war with God Almighty, he loved me. When I couldn't see and couldn't perceive, when I didn't care and I would raise my fist against him, he loved me. And he came on a rescue mission in Jesus for me. And I didn't know I needed rescuing and yet he brought it anyway. That's called spiritual death I lived in, that every Christian lived in. And yet here's the reality. I couldn't fix it and I was so confused in spite of me. While I was still a sinner, Jesus came. Here's the conclusion, faith alone, therefore, chapter five, verse one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. By what? By works? No. Effort? No. Wisdom? No. Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, exclusive peace. This conflict is only bridged by Jesus. There isn't a better word in the entire English language to describe what Jesus brings to those who will trust in him, peace. I don't know how you would, if someone said, here, go tell me about your lack of peace. Go tell me about the seasons where you lived apart from God, at war with God. Tell me what that felt like. And most of us probably, if we synthesized our thoughts together, we'd have a pretty gory list, pretty depressing. Things like mountain of guilt, Wave after wave of shame, like hide your head kind of shame. Perpetual effort, drained and exhausted, hurt and disappointment. Just, just keep going and we'd end up with a little list like who would, who would want to be there? Jesus was born, church, for our peace. Prince of peace, exclusive peace. Peace that can be found simply if you receive what Jesus only can give and we are reconciled to God. The relationship made right with God. 
So, so what is this wonderful peace that we remind ourselves is good news every Christmas? He came for us. And I didn't want him. But I needed him and didn't know it. And he came anyway. And he fixed the heart. And he fixed the mind. And he fixed the eyes. And he is my prize. Does that make sense? We get peace with God, but there is also this wonderful conclusion to this gospel story we believe in. It's the peace of God. And I suppose if anybody was saying, this culture, this time of the year, this season, 2016, that's what we need. And I suppose that's true. Here's what Jesus told his disciples, John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. John 16, I've told you these things. Jesus says, I taught you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's very more, much more powerful if you understand the context with which Jesus is saying these things. Jesus is telling his disciples about his imminent demise. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna go to a cross. I'm gonna give my life. And in a disciple's mind, this era, they're going, no, 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 not that, Jesus, because here's what we know. We got it good. You're powerful, and we can see Rome kind of being pushed aside here, and you can establish your kingdom now, and we can take position here, and we can experience all the joys, all the blessings of being in charge now. And Jesus had a totally different thing in mind. I've come to die. I've come to give my life. He's warning his disciples about his upcoming death. And how things are going to get tough. And Jesus says in the midst of all that, they can know peace in the bad times and in the trials. Apostle Paul, we've been here before too recently, but he defends this thought too when he says to the church in an imperative, in a command, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now watch the conclusion. And therefore, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, if you want this gift of peace, this gift of peace in troubled times, and you need to understand some things about it, this kind of peace is different than the world says. It's different what the world offers. Here's how the world defines peace, okay? Peace defined by the world is the absence of trouble and stress. That's what it says. Just remove the conflict, I got peace, right? But here's the reality. This is how we live it out. This is how the world lives it out. If there's a problem, here's what we do. Very simple, get rid of it. If you're stressed to such a high degree, here, here, take this. And then you won't feel anything. If you're stressed about a relationship, just leave it. Divorce is an option because that'll make things better for you. If you're overwhelmed, try this. Drink this. Sleep with that. Do this. If you feel guilty, just keep looking. Keep looking until you find someone who will tell you it's not your fault and you're a victim. There's lots of world answers to my, to my stress, my lack of peace. That's the world's version. God's peace is totally different. And I think you know this. But here's God's peace. It shows up in stress. It shows up in problems. It, it's the kind that brings confidence and, and a calmness in spite of circumstances. This peace is trusting God even when I don't know how it's going to turn out. That's what this kind of peace is. In fact, I would suggest to you that God's peace doesn't require for us to understand how things are going to turn out. 
because we see the ultimately the big picture, all right? You might not know how, uh, how this particular situation might be working itself out. S- sometimes, maybe many times, we, we end up deeper in, in, in what I would call pain and suffering, but here's true peace. It comes from a confidence in knowing the character of your God. Church, what do you know of God? Is he good? You feel free. I don't know if you know the answer to that question. Is he good? Sometimes? Oh, he's good all the time. Does he love you? What kind of love? Little love or magnificent kind of, yeah. Is he faithful? So you can trust him? Does he know you and your story? Does he know it better than you? Yeah. Is he all-powerful? Can he do anything he wants with any particular circumstance he finds you in? Can he sort it out and change it in a nanosecond? Okay. You've answered correctly, class. He is all these things. And the reality of it is where our peace comes from is knowing that about him. Not about having things necessarily go our way because you can't control some of those things. And here's the reality of it. This, This wonderful, wonderful God, who loves us in a faithful, everlasting way. He is intimately aware with us, and he's got a plan bigger than you. And here's what I've learned the hard way. When I think it's, it's like overkill in my life, little did I know years later that he is doing a story that ripples into other lives. He continues to do 50,000 things with one story over and over again. And someone's affected here and someone's affected there. Well, I'm being affected in a positive way. And here's the reality. Here's what our God does. You've heard me say it over and over and over again. His plan uses the things that we would call bad to accomplish his good in the lives of his church. He does. Hey, I don't know what to say, but when you suffer, and he's more than enough, and he is glorified, That to me sounds like a better conclusion than having never suffered. I don't want to suffer, but if God somehow puts circumstances together and I have to go under it for a while or for a lifetime and ultimately I can keep remembering that he's faithful and he's good and his story rings and it rings and it rings and he is made much of and his story gets told and people go, wow, there must be something different about your God, then it's a good thing. It's always been a good thing. He takes those things we run from and sorts them out to make a story of his goodness. Peace comes from this reality, knowing that God loves us in a perfect, selfless, for our good kind of love. And there's all sorts of different kinds of love in the world. But this is the only one that exists that's always for your good. Always. So if you, if you, and I know lots of friends, I just talked to one after the last service who's under the weight, has been for years under the weight of difficulty. Here's what we know, because we're anchored in who God is. His perfect selfless love is always for our good. And we have peace, right? Doesn't mean you're clueless about what suffering is or how much it hurts. It just means that when it's all said and done, I'm not afraid. I trust him. Here's what we've learned from Paul. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? Good. That's true. So 
Jesus, this Prince of Peace, this Promised One, this Messiah come, this child born, he is the peace with God. He's the peace of God that we experience. And here's the reality too. When he comes, he comes to bring peace with each other. This is a reconciliation that God brings between people and sinners who have a tendency to wound and hurt ourselves. If I were to talk, and I, I do this occasionally, if I sit down with the people who counsel in our church, the number, number one cause of high stress and problems is broken relationships and unforgiveness. From marriages and children and on and on it goes, people who just have a beef with each other, maybe a legitimate beef with each other, just can't seem, can't seem to release or forgive. They hold standards greater than, uh, than what they experience in the love of Jesus. Um, so Jesus in his coming brings enemies together. He brings obviously sinner to God together, but he brings us together. Uh, if you just spent some time in Matthew 18, you would discover how big of a deal this is. Matthew 18, Jesus is instructing his disciples about how to deal with sin, problems, brokenness between each other. He says, if your brother sins, go to your brother. If he listens to you in private, you haven't told anybody else, you've won your brother. Good, let it go. If he doesn't listen to you, care enough about your brother to take two and go to your brother and encourage him. Hey, this was sin. Man, I, I love you and I want you to turn from your sin. If you win your brother, great. It goes no farther. If he doesn't listen to the two of you, then you tell it to the church. I, many people in the past have described this as the church discipline passage. I prefer a better name. I think it's a better name. I, I, I like to think of it as church restoration. Sinners don't discipline sinners. We love people. We don't say yes to their sin. We just say, it's sin. Turn from your sin and you'll be restored. It's loving to do that. It's restorative to do that, right? It's what we're supposed to do. It's what Matthew 18 says for us to do. Now, in this audience was Peter, who is always a foot and mouth kind of a guy, clever in his thinking, thinks, okay, let me impress the Savior. And he suggests, hey, Jesus, how much should we do this forgiveness thing? How often should we go after a brother who sins 70 times seven, you know, Pregnant pause, leave room for Jesus to pat him on the back and say, good boy, that's a lot. I didn't mean that much. You're really exceptional, Peter. That's not at all what happens. That's not at all what happens. This, this is an incredible reality here. When, when Peter suggests seven times and Jesus says, let me give you an uncountable number, he goes on to tell a parable to describe what he means. The parable goes like this. There is a king and a servant who owes the king uh, let's just say an insurmountable debt. The equivalent of a year's salary. If it's in Gilbert, it's 60 to 70 grand he owes. An unpayable debt is the implication of the, of the story. And the servant comes to the king when the king requires the debt to be paid. And he says, pay your debt or I'll throw you in prison. And the, and the servant says, wait, 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 have mercy on me. And give me some time. Trust me and I'll pay back the debt. And the king, just been moved by compassion, just totally broken for the inability of this one, says, you're free. I'll take the debt. I'll own the debt. Now, hopefully you're seeing the picture of Jesus in this story, okay? This servant who's been forgiven an insurmountable debt, he goes out and finds a servant and owes him a small amount, the equivalence of a day's wage. He says, pay back what you owe. And he grabs him by the throat and the servant says, well, well give, me, give me some time. Give, give me a little bit of time and I'll pay back what I owe. I'm sincere, trust me. And the story goes that this servant threw that servant in jail. And the story gets back to the king. And King says, you wicked slave. I, gave, I forgave you a debt you could never possibly pay back. And here you are holding him against pennies. Off to destruction. 
the picture in totality of Matthew 18 confronting our brothers in sin and the unlimited numbers of time in which we do it and the parable that describes why is all the church needs to understand why Jesus came. Peace. How do we do peace? Sinners forgive sinners based on the quantity of sin that we have been forgiven. Church, how much have you been forgiven? Listen, I wish I had the video. We just put our stories up on the screen, see it from the beginning to the end, and we'd all kind of put our head down and go, I don't have any legs to stand on. I just forgive everybody. And that's the point. Jesus says, you have a debt you cannot pay, and you're holding little crumbs against other people. Your marriage can't be put together, really? Because you're the most, the most holy that's been offended? That's totally a God-like mindset. You gotta stop it, church. Here's the reality. When Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace, he sorts it out between God and man. He sorts it out in the heart, and he says, now go sort it out with each other. Go love other people. Give it away. Why? Because you're a debtor who's been forgiven. You should be skipping around, being thankful for how much God has given to you. Peace with other people. So that's the reality. And we do it, we have peace because we share this common problem called sin. We live under the same tragedy of our own decisions, this war that we've created with God, our inclinations to run from him. We all, no matter who you run into, it's me too. I either didn't have enough time or enough creativity to get as bad as you are, but either way, we're the same. We share the same solution too. Jesus, only Jesus. That's why, that's why I, I kind of get the blindness of the human heart, but when I tell you that Jesus is the cure to your spiritual cancer, the only cure, I don't know why we'd be offended by that. For him to be the exclusive and the perfect way to solve the problem, as opposed to, hey, maybe you should try to guess at this. Maybe. That isn't how Jesus presents himself. He is the one and only way no one comes to the Father but by him. We all share the same problem. We share the same solution. And Jesus is it. He is the peace of God, the peace with God, and the peace with others. So which particular peace do you need today? Yeah, we all need all of them. That's true. That's the right answer. But I have to assume that some of you came this Christmas holiday not knowing Jesus like this, thinking that coming to church was part of that religious pile that you can build that somehow God would notice and, and then owe you for. I, I hope I didn't depress you by telling you it doesn't work because if you get to the conclusion of saying it doesn't work, but Jesus has for you, come by faith, you're free. You can know peace with God. If you're here today and you're just angst like crazy, your heart's just totally upside down with wounds and burdens and the world and everything else, then, then hear the words of Christ preaching to his disciples who understood very little about his suffering when he told them. And we can have 20-20 hindsight looking back at the cross and he says, listen, listen, I've come to give peace in this circumstance. World coming apart at the seams, I've got you. And I love you and I know you and I'm doing a work. I'm doing a work you won't understand until it's all over. And, and I'm not necessarily certain you're gonna ever get so close to the story you know all the pieces. But I'm not gonna do something wrong. I only do good. And, and maybe, maybe this Christmas holiday is kind of that time of year where we are always reminded of the things that are broken between each other. Maybe this year you need to see, I probably need to clean that mess up. 
One is you, you might have sinned against someone or you're harboring bitterness towards someone who sinned against you. Either one of them don't match the Prince of Peace. Agreed? Church, all, all we are, in the best sense of the word, and I don't mean to depress you, we are completely clueless sinners who have only one shot of hope, Jesus for us. It comes by faith, not by effort, period. Trust in Christ. And when that happens, when the lights come on and you trust in Jesus, well, you can give it away. You can forgive. You can forgive an insurmountable debt because of how great the forgiveness was for you. Amen? Let's pray. We're grateful again, Father, for your word. For a reminder um, at this Christmas about the Prince of Peace. The one who established the reconciliation between you and us, the sinner. The one who brings a perspective and a, and a satisfaction even in the midst of trials and trouble. And the one who gives us the perspective of others' sin towards us. Lord, I want us to be a people of peace because we follow the Lord of peace. Help us this year to do that in your name, we pray. Amen.